0: So my guest today, no stranger to the camera. In fact, uh, we met in my TV days back at Fox Sports. Uh, we had a great relationship then working together how we did and uh, very much looking forward to, to chatting about his journey. Uh, my guest today, David Tapp, but uh, more affectionately known as Tappy. How are you, mate? Mate, I'm really good. This is uh, something quite different for me, being on the other side, if you know what I mean. I do. You're used to asking the questions, so um, looking I forward to this and um, and seeing where we land. So, for those unfamiliar, you you've been in this this landscape of working in broadcast for for many many years. Tell me, Tappy, how did you get into broadcast television?
1: Well, um, obviously, I grew up uh, in a household that, uh, shall we say, was
0: fairly media centric. Um, and, and Tappy, for those that don't, for those that don't know, like explain what you mean by that. Well, what I mean by that is
1: uh, my father, uh, John Tapp, was, was very heavily interested in, in radio and television uh, during my early years. And indeed, he, he continued to, to do that uh, for 50 years. Uh, he had a stellar career. And uh, I think it's fair to say, Ian, in the 70s and 80s, um, he, he was as close to a household name as you could get. Absolutely. Uh, in, in sports broadcasting, and to be honest, uh, that actually um, was pressure uh, on occasions. And and when I left school, uh, I actually deliberately decided to go in a different direction, different career completely, which was retail and marketing. Uh, it wasn't that I had a chip on my shoulder, but I just didn't uh, I didn't think that it was wise to try and follow in the footsteps of such an icon. I mean, in his field of of race broadcasting, arguably the best in the world. (laughs) It's a pretty hard act to follow. But to be honest, uh, in my gut, I knew I actually did want to give it a crack, but I just had this attitude that, no, don't be stupid. (laughs) You're on a hiding to nothing. Um, And and I had quite a good career in retailing and marketing, and um, things were going really well. But it just continued to burn at me. And uh, in my early 20s, I made a dramatic career switch uh, and tried to get into into broadcasting. And I rang Dad and I said, I've I've made a big decision. I want to try and follow in your footsteps, not as a a race caller, but uh, in that landscape. And um, he said, mate, I I knew this call would come. Um, All the best to you. I'm not making a phone call for you. Uh, You've got to do it on your own like I did. And I said, perfect. That's exactly how I want it to be. And I touched base with Ian Craig himself, uh, a fantastic uh, race broadcaster and uh, he gave me some advice and one thing led to another and I started at 2KY as it was called then Uh, now it's called Sky Sports Radio Um, just as a casual doing motorsport reports on David Lord's Saturday morning sports
0: show so that's how it began I'm talking 1987 yeah wow yeah yeah as you say though like your dad was a household name like if you if you watched any of the races or even if you didn't like growing up in that wide world of sports Year right. on Saturday afternoon like Tappi right. was on there all the time yeah. and uh and then for you to then go and try and forge your own path in that industry I imagine that would have been like hugely challenging and did you cop sort of grief from I know you said there are some of those people that were really awesome and helped you along the way but did you cat did you sort of cop some grief from other people like thinking you were sort of piggybacking the name without a doubt
1: without a doubt that there were there were plenty of cynics would make a comment I oh, mate you're only doing it because undoubtedly he got you the job uh, that sort of thing which in truth is 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 exactly why i didn't go down that path initially because yeah. i knew that was inevitable and um that kind of bothered me but but after a while i turned i turned that negativity into into energy and um uh, You know, at at the end of the day, as you know, and it's no different in any, any career. It doesn't matter if someone opened a door for you or not. You have to survive on your own ability, prosper on your own ability. So uh, I've never been a guy that lacked (laughs) self-confidence. I'm very ambitious. And, um, you know, I I think to turn a negative into a positive, the the pressure by virtue of being uh, the son of John Tapp, uh ended up working for me because if i can say failure was not an option and and it never entered my mind so after a period of time you've just got to get on with it and do it and i'd like to think i did
0: yeah absolutely and interestingly some of your broadcast journey has taken you into areas where you're working in in similar in racing and so on but i know one of your real passions is is in other sports so Mm. Tell me about the motor racing first, because that's how we first came to know each other. Was uh, helping deliver your your pro your speedway program on Fox Sports, uh, amongst others. But that was the kind of the, the most uh, well known and consistent at the time. It ran yeah, for well,
1: twenty years. It ran for twenty years, and as you know, it was the longest running program um, on subscription TV at the time. It yeah. went on air week one, but pay TV started in nineteen ninety five. Um, yeah, look, that that came about because when I was a, a kid, Uh, my uncle Tony, my mother's brother, was a Speedway fanatic. And it was hard not to be because the sport was massive in Sydney. Uh, Back in those days, there were three venues. And Liverpool, the Sydney Showground, and and Parramatta City Raceway. And I used to go to the Speedway with my uncle uh, on Saturday nights. He used to drive well out of his way to take me, which I'll be forever grateful for. And I just loved it. And uh, uh, when I was about 20, I decided to buy a car and start racing myself. And um, I soon realized that that was uh, foolish unless one had endless resources, a <laughs> pretty expensive sport. Uh, but I, I think I competed for about five years. But one thing led to another, then, uh, then I became involved uh, writing stories for national magazines and, and what have you. And it just all uh, dovetailed into the fact that I recognized that motorsport, if you take all the genres, not just Speedway, Formula One, MotoGP, so forth that there was actually an opportunity in the mainstream media uh, for someone to talk about it on a regular basis. It was really only Mike Raymond. uh, And I know you had Andy on uh, fairly recently. So that's what I did. And I started knocking down doors. And when I started at 2KY, uh, as I said earlier, I did a a weekly motor racing rap and Ian Maurice at the time was doing a show on Sundays, The Great Bear, uh, and he started inviting me in on his show and it just really snowballed from there. But in truth, my my, my first great love is rugby league, without a doubt. And um, once I had established myself and was doing a lot of things for a lot of people, um, I just decided that rugby league was where I wanted to head. So once I felt I'd made a name for myself in motor racing, um, that was the ultimate goal to get involved in rugby league. And, and that actually happened at the same radio station at 2KY, where I had a chance to call... My first game was the President's Cup grand final St George and Western Suburbs, I think it was 1991. And uh, that St George side featured uh, Gordon Tallis as a young firebrand and Nathan Brown. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's how it all began. So for the next, I guess, 20 years, uh, I managed to juggle both motor racing, rugby league, and, and a lot of other sports too. And I love that.
0: Yeah. Now, was, was the getting into the rugby league calling one of those um, moments of fate where kind of the stars aligned and you, and you got into that? Or was that you sort of taking advantage of an opportunity? How did that all play out? There was – at,
1: at Radio Station 2KY, uh, it was a – it was a well, a, a station that uh, comprised um, a number of very high-profile sports broadcasters. Uh, Ray Warren was doing the drive-time show, and he mentored me a lot. Uh, I'll be forever grateful, uh, particularly about light and shade and uh, don't exaggerate. And if uh, if the crowd's not up, you shouldn't be up, things like that. Uh, Greg Hartley, Peter Peters, program director was Ian Trent, um, and he would built a very successful team at 2GB where he was prior with Hollywood and Zorba, and they all came across the 2K1. And uh, I let it be known to Ian that if the opportunity ever came, I'd love to have a crack at calling the rugby league i played rugby league until i was in my early 20s yeah, right. and um he came down to my office one day i was preparing for my motoring program which i had on the air every sunday he went uh, that thing you mentioned to me about wanting to have a crack at the football and by the way this was the friday of grand final week so i had like one day to prepare <laughs> he, said, he said would you like to call st george and western suburbs uh, and the president's cup i went yes he said do you reckon you can do it i said yes and he said, all right, you're on. You've got to be out there at 10 a.m. You'll go on air. And uh, my co-commentator was Tony Peters and Tony McGay. And, uh, and we called the game. And, uh, and Western Subway was won in the boil over, in fact. Um, um, and, but what happened prior to that was on the Friday after the entrant told me I was doing it, Greg Hartley marched into my office <laughs> about an hour later and said, don't do it, don't do it. Like well, you had no time to prepare. What are you thinking? <laughs> you know, he said, you call the Bathurst car racing. You're great at that, but you can't do this to yourself. And that made me more determined. So uh, it went really well. And uh, this is a little known fact. I've never talked about it publicly. There's only a few people that know. Um, after that call, I was approached the following week by the legendary John Brennan to join 2UE as Ray Hadley's understudy. Wow. Yeah. Um, he, he'd actually heard the call. And um, that was a really big deal. Uh, to, I mean, he was the godfather of radio, and um, uh, but I couldn't do it. I, I had all these other commitments at the time, and um, right. It, it also involved filling in for Peter Bosley, who had um, Sports Today for so many years, and I just couldn't
0: do it. At the time, the stars just didn't
1: align, so I couldn't take the job, and I um, I do lament that to this day, actually.
0: Well, I, I'm the bit that like we're going to come back to that that opportunity. I'm fascinated by this. So at the time, uh, Greg Harley and Peter Peters were like, they were known as like the best callers. They, they actually changed the way yeah. uh, league was called in in many ways. Uh, I was watching, uh, oh, the interview the other day, someone was talking about it. And how It was they- Ray Hadley on NRL. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it was. I was, I was uh, Ray Hadley with the Matty Johns face to face. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he was talking about how they, they started talking Talking footy before the game started and all that sort of stuff. I I got really fond memories of the 89 grand final, uh, listening to those two. And, and like, so I wonder, like, because to me, it's like, why, why would he say that to you? Like, it's almost like, was he, was there an element, and you don't have to answer this and you may not know the answer, was there an element of him feeling threatened by, by you if he did know that you were very good in those other areas, I wonder.
1: Oh, I don't know, mate. I, uh, look, Greg and I always got on well, and we, and we do to this day. In fact, mm. we were communicating uh, on text just the other day. Um, so, no, I don't think so. I think I think Greg was a honestly a good guy who uh, just was concerned I was maybe biting off more than I could chew, and things were going really well for me at that time. I'd also started uh, working for White World Sports as a freelance yep. reporter, yep. early 90s, and... Um, um, I just think he was concerned
0: that I was going to make myself um, perhaps falter. <laughs> to put it, yeah, to put okay. There's so more and more uh, being a protective uh, sort of uh, figure instead. So, do you do you think about or have you thought about in the past that opportunity and what life would look like if you'd taken it that that opportunity to jump the to two UE? look I, I, I must be honest and it's uh yeah it, it comes into my head all these years
1: later not not often but it, it does come into my head and um but it just wasn't to be because uh, at the time i had a multitude of other commitments and um it, i just couldn't do it at that time it was not a case of not being able to do it at all i could do it but he wanted me to start in the january which was only what four months after he heard heard the call and i had commitments that I could not get out of. And uh, I said to Bruno, can I please start in February? And he said, no, I need you to start in January. I need you to do Peter Bosley's show in uh, in January when he's on leave. And man, that show was just iconic, sports today. So I knew what I was doing, saying, no, I can't do it. That <laughs> was, but um, I mean, what do you do? It's it just, I, I just couldn't do it. I had other yeah. commitments, I would have let a lot of people down and uh, I'm not like that. So, and what happened then was there's another funny story to it. He then called me again six months later and offered me the same job at 4BC in Brisbane, which two, was part of the 2 UE stable, uh, doing the equivalent of the Sports Today show there and calling all the Broncos games. And I said, no again, <laughs> because I'd just bought a house, I had young kids. Uh, to be honest, the offer financially was, was not great. And uh, I said, my, I, I after I thought about it, I didn't just say no straight away, um, I said, I can't do it. And he said, Tappy, I'm not going to ask you again. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to, and he's never asked me again. <laughs> so, but listen, he did have a guy called Andrew Voss there, <laughs> and, and, and Andrew Moore was also there, and Timmy Gilbert. Yeah. So there was, there was no shortage of depth in the place, was there? Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um... What, what i know of you is absolutely like you're you're a man of integrity that sticks to what you've agreed to um and i think we'll come back to that what i want to know is so what is the buzz of calling live sport like what is what is that, how does that feel like what, what does it give you that that you just can't find in other parts of your life that is a great question um and, and it's also very
1: prudent because i'm not doing it now uh, and I miss it. The whole COVID thing has derailed so many things, hasn't it, in yeah. people's lives? And I've called nothing for twelve months or or a little bit more. Uh, and it is simply the adrenaline, um, the the theatre uh, being part of creating or not not creating, but but being part of something that is just so much fun. I mean, I'm telling you, you would call rugby league for nothing. It's that much fun. Um, um. And, it's, and big, it's obviously a big challenge too um, to get through live TV, uh, you know, try not to make an error. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's it's impossible to replicate once you've been doing it for a long time, as I was lucky enough to do. Gee, you miss it, mate. I'm
0: telling you, it's just a real buzz. Yeah, right. So much like the, the players when they retire, the um, trying to fill that hole of what was there. Um, you said you, you sort of you said created, but then backpedal. I think like the caller does create so much. Like if you think about watching anything with the sound down, it doesn't have the same impact. If you think about, um, I heard Rabs interviewed recently, and he said um, players had had got their like farewell um, farewell videos done, and and how much it meant to them to have his voice on the track of. Of that. Yes. So I think absolutely. Uh, and, and actually, thinking about that now, are there people in motorsport that when we think about them, they, they are synonymous with your voice in, in speedway or any other parts of motorsport? Oh,
1: I'm not so sure about that. I mean, um, so I didn't, uh, you know, Rabs, um, obviously he can call anything uh, and he will admit he wanted to be a horse race caller. Yeah. Uh, but there were other people around in front of him at the time, um, namely my father. And um, he, obviously, he called rugby league when he was in junior, and he ended up calling rugby league and making that space his own. He's the the greatest of all time. Um, with me, uh, I, I bounced around a fair bit. Yes, I did the rugby league, but during the summer, I was off doing motorsport, and 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 sometimes I was doing it all at the same time. Uh, there was a period in my life where, for example, I'd call the NRL for for Fox on uh, on, a, on a Saturday, uh, then I'd race from there to do my sports show at 2GB on Saturday night, then I'd leave there and go to the Channel 7 studios to host the World Grand Prix Speedway Series overnight um, and, and get no sleep, and then I'd drive straight from Channel 7 at Epping back to 2GB to do my Sunday sports show. Do you know what I'm saying? So I, I was just that busy. Um, I didn't give myself time to become synonymous with any with any sport really. Yeah, uh, and look, my dad used to say to me, "Mate, you're doing too much. Why don't you just like pick the thing you like the most and do that?" <laughs> you know, but uh, unfortunately, that's not me.
0: Yeah, and I think what I felt through that is how, like, and those who watch this a lot will know that I, I get a sense through my body of what people are talking about that just felt so good coming from you, how you were able to jump around. And that, and when I think you, that is you, right? That ability to adapt to so many different environments. It's why you're able to be thrown into the NRL at short notice and still do a fantastic job that, that someone at another station notices because you have that ability to almost blend in, in all of those different environments. So is that, does that sound fair enough? Yeah, I think uh, sure. But, um, In the main, I'm I'm an all-round sports fan
1: and have always been a a fanatical sports person and have always taken an interest in a lot of sports. I mean, we've talked about rugby league and we've talked about motor racing, but there are other things that that, I love, tennis. Uh, I love ice hockey. Uh, I had the chance to call the ice hockey world championship um, oh, about twelve years ago, which was scary.
0: <laughs>
1: Can't believe how fast that game is. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I called a, a, a World Cup soccer qualifier. You know, the Socceroos and, and Iran and, and things like that. So, and, and I felt comfortable uh, with whether, with whatever I did because I'd spent uh, all my life observing sport of all different kinds. <laughs> So it, so it wasn't that
0: hard to find the self belief to go and sort of call anything. Yeah, yeah. sure, uh, and that to me that rings true from from what I know about you as well. So how how do you receive that comment from your dad then, suggesting you should focus on one area when when you as a sports fan and actually enjoying the multi nature of what you were doing? How do you how do you respond to that? given, again, not just that he's your dad, but also from his own experience. Yeah. Look, how do I respond to that? It's hard to argue with his logic because look what he did.
1: (laughs) Um, uh, Outstanding in his field. The best, in my opinion. Um, Not biased. I I just said to him, I I get what you're saying, um, but I'm younger than you, (laughs) so I've, I've still got to find what it is that I really want to focus on, but but I really never changed, you know, 25 years later, uh, I was still happy to do anything. Um, I, I know what he meant, but um, it was just not me. You know, I, I wanted to have uh, be versatile and, and, um, and have her go at as many things as I could. And it's all good well later in life, in my business life. Yeah. Um, because as you know, um, there are very few sports, my company, Power Productions, has not televised at some point. And so I think it was meant to be the way it turned out.
0: Yeah, it, it always is, right? Um, I I just like wrap up the sports uh, calling part just for the time being with the question of what is, in your memory, what is that, that event that you called that still sort of gives you tingles when you think about it that was just such an awesome experience? Well, um, look... Um, so honestly, it's hard. I I can't pinpoint
1: one. I would say, I would say possibly the most memorable broadcast for so many reasons was anchoring the seven networks commentary of the great race of Bathurst. Um, after Peter Brock retired, he was my co-commentator. How good? Uh, along with Bradley Jones, um, and I was sitting in the, um, in the commentary box at Mount Panorama, absolutely pinching myself. But I've got the great man <laughs> sitting beside me. And the other thing that's memorable about that day, it rained all the time. So we spent more time talking about the pace car than <laughs> we did actual racing. And I'm telling you, I wasn't bored once. <laughs> wow. The block was an absolute freak. You know, this, the guy could just talk, beyond he was incredible. He'd talk under underwater with a mouthful of marbles, you know, the late, great Rocky. Yeah. And he had these things, you know, he'd say, the secret of the life is bite off more than you can chew and chew like buggery. You know, and <laughs> he had so many of these little things. And uh, oh, oh, that's a great one, I think. Yeah. yeah. I can relate to that one.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I can relate to, like, that's just takes me flashbacks to, to that whole generation of, of all those people uh, sports stars um particularly in that uh, v8 or what wasn't all v8 in those times the touring cars um mm. in australia the event that came to my mind after i asked the question was when the world speedway came to australia and you had what 60 70 thousand people in stadium australia um for this round of the world speedway which is typically through europe right and and we bring it to australia and and your involvement in that too yeah Yeah, I had had a few cracks at that actually,
1: Uh, I was lucky the first time um, a Grand Prix came down, I know you're quite right, at the Olympic Stadium in Sydney, that was, let me think, that was about 2000, the year 2000, Um, and then it went missing for a long time and came back to Etihad in Melbourne, uh, which I was lucky enough to do a few times through Fox Sports and, and for the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a great buzz, uh, a sport I grew up loving, um, got a lot of respect for those guys, 500cc bikes, no brakes, and what they do is amazing. But yes, you're right, it's a huge sport in Europe, uh, right for Scandinavia, Eastern Europe, um, yeah, Britain, etc. And another one I enjoyed, in fact, was uh, the New Zealand Grand Prix um, at uh, Western Springs. Uh, that venue has a, a magnificent amphitheater, and um, the way it was just a great day, yeah. Really enjoyed it. But there's, there's been a lot. Another memorable one, if I may, just was working with the great Daryl East, like the late great Daryl, who played a big role in my life as well, in the early yeah. days. Um, worked with him a lot over the years, doing different things, the Gold Coast IndyCar Grand Prix. And we did this event at Eastern Creek called the Windfield Triple Challenge. Um, I hope it's not inappropriate to mention tobacco, but back in those days, it was legal yeah, to go for to it. Talk mention, about mention it. Mention and, uh, great concept, it was circuit racing, Uh, all day followed by drag racing at night so fans paid for their ticket they got in and they got to see v8 supercars um, super bikes all all different manner of road racing category and then at night time the floodlights would come on and the top field drags would come out and we did it live on night it was daryl eastlake myself uh, alan jones barry sheen to watch daryl eastlake (laughs) and to be in the box beside him mate that was unbelievable. <laughs> How he could make anything sound exciting, anything. And like I'd been around for a while by then, and I'm just looking up, thinking, really? <laughs> How do you do that? It was like it was amazing.
0: He wow. was the master of theatre. What an honour for you to have been able to work with so many absolute icons of, of sport in Australia. But I feel like, from what you've already told me about Daryl, is that he his impact for you went far beyond just the calling, right? So why was Daryl so no. special in your life? Um, I, he, he sort of took me under his wing. Uh, we had
1: a lot of mutual interests, uh, and in fact, he was a big speedway fan too. And uh, you know, I was would started working just freelance at Wide of Sports. You may recall uh, Max Walker had the Sunday Morning Edition. Yes. Uh, another one of the great characters of Australian sports. Sadly, not here. And, and I used to file a, a 10 minute story every Sunday. And I don't know, Daryl and I just started talking and and, and he used to call me uh, and he said, mate, I heard you call the other day of that. Like, not time to tell you what to do, but mate, you know, try this and try that. and um, And this is coming from the guy that got Dragged out of the commentary box at the Commonwealth Games with the weightlifting because he was making too much noise, and I had to build him a special commentary box under the stairway or something. But no, I, I did appreciate what you're saying, and I had a, a radio program on the air at that time. It was I'm reverting back to the two K Y year. The first time I was there twice, um, and I had a, a Sunday night program called Straight Talk T O R Q U uh, E, covering all manner of, of motor racing and motoring, and, and he used to listen to it every Sunday night and often used to ring up on the open line, as did Ken Sutcliffe, in fact. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he just, I don't know, he, we just had a great rapport, and um, he, he was fantastic to me. He, he, yeah, uh, awesome. We also had a mutual friend in Wayne Gardner. Uh, Daryl and I used to sort of co-host a lot of Grand Prix launches and dinners and things, and, and when Wayne retired from racing in 1992, um, I decided to stage a big night in his honour. Uh, and we raised a fortune for Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, about $400,000, I think it was. And Daryl helped me. He got right on board and, and he couldn't do enough to help. Great man for charity. But, um, yeah, I miss him. I miss him. Yeah. He yeah. spent a fair bit of time with Daryl.
0: Yeah, I, I guess, uh, like, it sounds like almost like a father figure in many ways in, in his ability to to guide you and support you in 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 your venture into broadcast television, but also just navigating life, right? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. It wasn't that I needed another
1: father figure, but I, I know what you're saying. Um, I just think it was because of our mutual interest that uh, we could talk for hours about, about anything. And um, he was a pretty versatile guy. He, he could call a lot of different things, but I mean, I, I mentioned Wayne Gardner before, um, you know, uh, Gardner switched the entire nation On on to to motorcycling, certainly, I mean, but Daryl was a massive part of that because he was doing the the calls on Nine at the time and and Wayne's success led ultimately to a Grand Prix being staged in Australia. It led to the Victorian government investing in Phillip Island and uh, Bob Barnard was brought on board to build the circuit. Wayne did all of that, but Daryl delivered the end product with Wayne. Gardner rode out of his skin, won two consecutive Grand Prix in a row at Phillip Island. And, mate, Daryl was a – it's a bit like what you were saying before uh, with raps and rugby league. Well, Daryl's broadcast of those two Phillip Island races
0: at Gardner won, uh, mate, they'll go down in Australian sporting folklore. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I get tingles thinking about it. Um, yeah. yeah, so when I say father figure, like – we all have fathers it doesn't mean we can't have other father figures like if i look at my life my older brother definitely played a part there um different other like coaches i had and other different people but but they provide similar in terms of um just giving us i guess belief in ourselves ultimately right
1: yeah for sure and also my my father
0: um was very good
1: at I shouldn't. I won't use the word interfere. That's not the right word, but it comes to mind. I guess. But he would only ever really offer me advice if I asked for it. He was very, very much of the of the belief you've got to do it on your own. You've got to find out. Um, you know the hard way. Make the mistakes. Um, Daryl, by virtue of his louder-than-life personality, was he <laughs> just told you was, was more forthcoming with advice whether I asked for it or not. Yeah. Um, and also, Rabs, uh, when I was at Two K Y the first time. Um, he, 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 he gave me a lot of good advice as well. He, he was, he, he could see where I was going, what I wanted to do. And, uh, we often used to have lunch together, uh, when they were based at Parramatta and, uh, he, he, yeah, he taught me a lot about breathing, light and shade and, you know, and uh, champion, if someone casts the ball up and you've got no idea who it is, that's when you tell the score or talk about the weather.
0: Or something like that. Yeah, brilliant. And he's yeah. right. That's exactly what you do do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, when when you were younger, like, do you, can you remember like a a moment or moments that are sort of really pivotal in really shaping the direction your life took? Was there something that you overcame? Was there a was there a setback or a moment that kind of really sticks with you?
1: Um, a moment, a setback that shaped the way my life was going to be? Mm, not really. I think um, as a, as a young bloke, I used to absolutely love going to the races with my dad. Uh, I was in awe of what he did, um, and, and still am. You know, uh, at at the peak of his powers, and he won't like it when he sees this interview <laughs> if he, he might be watching now. <laughs> uh, what he used to do was beyond belief where, uh, you know, you'd go to Randwick on a Saturday and he'd be hosting, he'd be doing the on-course commentary, he'd be doing the commentary for radio, he'd be doing the commentary for Sky Racing and he was doing the commentary for for Nine, because as you know, back in that era, Nine used to show quite a lot of coverage live of the the main races on Saturday afternoon. So he literally had all these different microphones that he was switching on and off and he couldn't say this on that one and he had to say that on this one. And very often he'd have to turn around and do a hosting piece to camera as well. And all of that ate into his time to prepare for the call because race callers are very special people. They've got a computerized memory. They literally have to learn, let's say, 20 sets of colors to broadcast a race, call the horses across the line, completely discard that and start again for the next one. Yeah. And obviously that time when the runners go onto the track and uh, are going around the barrier, that's when the callers look for their binoculars, you know. Uh, you know, uh, blue with a white sash and uh, black cap, that's me and Hawkins. And, of course, Dad was had all his other commitments prior to the race, so he had no time to do it. Wow. And he, he did it. And you asked me, was there a moment that I suppose shaped my future? I, I actually think it was every Saturday. When yeah. I was a kid, and I loved the trots every Friday night in Harold Park, and I don't know, it just—I guess deep down, I just had to be a part of something like that down the track. Oh, it's got tingles. It's hard to explain,
0: but I've done my best, I think. Oh, absolutely, it tingles all through that because I think, like you said, that that was a moment. a lot today. Yeah. Oh man, that's all a good thing, right? To me, that's like that's that's showing that's a real positive. That's a real positive thing for you, right? So so we're connected by. Because we we're, we're chatting together, and I feel like, yeah, absolutely. What you got that grounding every single week, and what I was immediately drawn to was you said he didn't have that preparation time, and he you obviously absorbed so much of that to the point where when you're offered two days before a grand final that you get to call a game, all those skills that you observed in your dad, you were able then to replicate in in a different sport, but with the same idea of going. Well, I'll just do it. You've seen your dad do it. Your belief is that that's possible, and, and away you go. It's amazing. I think, I think, uh, I think the um,
1: it's just a want factor, isn't it? You know, if you want to do something badly enough, you'll just find a way. And yes, I, I dare say, if um, if I was offered the opportunity to call my first rugby league game two hours before kickoff, <laughs> I might have found a way to do it. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. No, you, you would know, have said if, yes. If you really want to do something? You 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 make it happen, mate.
0: Yeah. You know, you absolutely. Make it yeah, I, I can't remember which commentator it was. Uh, someone I was listening to recently, and they said every time they were offered something, they just said yes because sometimes opportunities in that industry are few and far between. Yeah. Say yes, and then work out how you're going to do it afterwards. And uh, and and that rings true for you, right? Like just dive in, yeah. do it, and see how you go. And uh, oh, I love that. So you can't so, buy one; you've got to have a crack. Yeah, I. I'm drawn to the uh, South Sydney Rabbitohs jersey behind you because I know one of those things you gave a crack. I, I think I've got this right. I think you told me it almost wasn't a choice because it had kind of been announced before you even knew anything about it—the role of CEO of the uh, of the very proud South Sydney Rabbitohs. Yeah, that was, um, in some ways, a big turning point for me
1: because at that time I was calling NRL. Uh, and uh, my career in broadcasting was going quite well, uh, and and so was business. Um, power Productions, uh, <coughs> sports production company, was gaining momentum. I also had a publishing company at that time, You're right. which I had for eighteen years, um, and, and I was pretty busy. <laughs> and um, I was involved. Uh, you, I think you'll find this interesting. When, when the South Sydney Rabbitohs were expelled from the competition, as it turns out illegally, by virtue of the Trade Practices Act. Um, Everyone will well remember in this country, the way people power uh, rallied, if you like. And there were a group of very high profile people that decided to put uh, an entity together called Group 14. And Group 14 comprised some really high profile people. Uh, And that group's mandate was to raise money, a war chest, to try and get the Rabbitohs back into the competition. And obviously that started with taking um, with taking the other organisation to court, uh, News Limited. And so that, just to, to mention some of the names, Alan Jones, uh, Don Lane, Mike Whitney, Andrew Denton, uh, Ray Martin. <laughs> Uh, and so on and so on. So I was given the opportunity to uh, to get on board because obviously I'd been a Rabbitoh supporter my whole life and uh, I was at the time uh, on radio and I I was pretty outspoken uh, about what had happened. The club was disgraceful and I'll still say it was disgraceful forever. Yeah. They owed nobody any money. They paid their bills. Um, they had had more success in the game than any other any other franchise, if you like. And they became a casualty of nothing more than chaos, uh, the whole Super League thing. And uh, this organisation, or entity Group 14, raised a a lot of money. And I was lucky enough to be invited to be on there. Um, And, you know, I got got a bit of money and so forth. So when the club got back into the competition, um, and I had been in court um, for a number of weeks, along with a lot of other people, that was a very special day when the uh, appeal was upheld and uh, and the club therefore got back into the competition we did drink a lot that day <laughs> and, I, and i remember i was doing breakfast radio at 2ky and i had to back up on the saturday morning and i think i just played glory glory to south sydney about 300 times
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was uh, in fact the, the beginning of the big sports breakfast on weekends i, I started that there anyway and it was really funny. Um, so I continued to have a relationship with uh, with the club and, and helped out, you know, ground announcing and just doing different things. And um, then of course, um, yeah, as you say, the way the CEO thing came around was was almost bizarre. Um, when the club got back to the competition, Paul Dunn, uh, very good footballer in his own right, former Clive Churchill medal winner, um, was the CEO. Um, And then something happened (laughs) and I was at home watching the footy show one Thursday night. It was, um, let me think, it was uh, September 2002 and um, Fat fat Man came on and said, big news out of uh, South Sydney, let's cross to Andrew Voss who's on the spot and and Voss, he was, thank you very much Fat Man and uh, Paul Paul Dunn has gone and David Sapp's been installed as interim CEO. Well, I was at home watching. (laughs) (laughs) And fell off the lounge. And my son Jacob went, Dad, did you hear that? <laughs> and my phone started going berserk. And uh, it's a, a long story. But um, so I rang George Piggins and I said, George, um, I'm watching the footy show. And he went, yeah. He said, I'm going to talk to you about it tomorrow. If that's right. I'm busy at the moment. We can bring me tomorrow. But I've I, been spending a lot of time there. And um, he knew I could generate money or the club knew I could generate money, which is really what they needed yeah. And um, it was an interesting few years, but it was a turning point for me because essentially that meant I had to make a decision between broadcasting or sports administration. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, uh, Fox Sports said to me, Well, mate, you can't really be a CEO of a club and call a footballer. Like, how's that going to work? It's not like you're going to criticise your own club. And, you know, and that happened in a number of media roles I was fulfilling at the time. So I pretty much had to make a decision to um, to put some of the broadcasting on the back burner. And, and do the South Sydney job, which I did for nearly three years. It was a pretty tough 33 years, you know, um, yeah. What else can I say? The club was
0: underfunded and inevitably the club had to be privatised, so. Um and we don't have to go into it now, but one of my memories of, of what you were saying is like uh, some of the challenges around players that um, perhaps were a bit different to how they are now. How much work you had to do just uh, making sure the the image of the club was uh, continued to be represented at the highest, right? Um, so, <laughs> without going into any details. No, absolutely. So... <laughs> so what did you learn, like, from basically, well, firstly, being told you're doing a job that yeah, that you didn't know anything about, but also like, you're you you are the CEO of your your club that you followed as a youngster, uh, mm. which you had so much passion for. Like, what did you learn about life and business and being thrust into that role, and all of the challenges that come with it? What did I learn? Goodness me, I mean. Sh-
1: <laughs> You'd need to have a 10-hour broadcast here. Yeah. <laughs>
0: what's the first thing that
1: comes um, to mind? I learned that um, in the NRL, um, mate, it costs a lot of money to have a competitive team, even back then. Yep. Um, and there were teams spending $25 million a year in the early 2000s to have a presence in the NRL. And people watching this will go, what does he mean by that, the salary cap? What was it back then? I think it was $3.75 million or something from memory. I could be wrong um but what i mean by that is all the infrastructure around it your your training facilities your full-time medical staff um your second tier players uh your junior development uh your camps uh you know your training camps mate it costs a lot of money Uh, and that was that was a huge eye opener um and honestly if you didn't have 20 million a year you couldn't really compete that was back then Right, so that was a, a huge learning exercise. And just the way a big sport works, uh, stadium deals, uh, signage, the importance of, um, of season ticket revenue, merchandise revenue, membership uh, revenue, and certainly sponsorship revenue. And uh, we had the highest sponsorship in the game uh, in that era, excluding the, the Broncos. So let's say the New South Wales-based clubs anyway. And when you consider that, uh, we were not spectacularly successful on the field during that era. Uh, That was a big effort, Um, and I know that when Shane Richardson came across from, he was at the Panthers and he came across to the Rabbitohs, uh, he said to me, mate, I cannot believe the marketing revenue this club's got, you know, and just as well, because we didn't have a lease club propping us up like most of the other NRL NRL entities did back at that time. So, it was a real, it um, it was an interesting few years, and I still was juggling my business in that as well. Yeah, well, how? So, uh, I was pretty busy. <laughs> I think nowadays yeah. and, you know, seven days a week for a long time. Yeah. But uh, uh, look, I, I made a lot of contacts. I learned a lot about business. I learned a lot about sport uh, on the other side. In other words, not, not media, not broadcasting. Yeah, yeah. And just look, at, it all was to stand me in good stead in the future. It, it's all added up to the fact that I'm still here in 2021, having survived COVID last year. We're no different to anyone. We dumped a lot of money uh, on cancelled work and plenty of uh, doom and gloom stories, but we're still standing and we're still going all right. And I've got no doubt all of that stuff you've talked about so far uh, has helped ensure that has been the case.
0: No doubt. And that, and that's part of the message that I love to share is, is everything that we've overcome. Even if it feels like at the time the the darkest days, it gives us all the strength and resilience to to be able to do whatever comes next, right? And and the thing that's really shining a light at the moment is it consistent, consistently through all of that, is your ability to generate more funds. And, yeah. and even through the last, you said you lost like we're talking millions in the last in the last twelve months, and yet you're still afloat. You still Keep moving forward. So, so, do you? Is there a knack that you have for that? Can you put your finger on why that is? What? Why? How are you able to do that through all of the different challenges you have faced through owning a broadcast company? Because um, I, I just I, I don't
1: believe in giving up if you believe in the cause, and um, I think I used the term earlier that failure is not an option. Um, it, it's just not. I've always been really big. I I have three amazing kids, two sons and a daughter. Um, The two boys work in this business. Uh, My daughter has a very successful uh, beauty business. Um, Mate, the best thing you can teach your kids is you don't quit. You know, you've just got to, you just don't quit. It's okay to quit if inevitably, due to reasons beyond your control, persistence may lead to failure. That's not that's not quitting. That's just being sensible, right? Yeah, yeah. If you really believe in in something, you just gotta just gotta keep going. And that's not to say that it's easy, you know. One of the biggest things that, and you can relate to this, I know, uh, particularly in the media, mate. There's no loyalty, you know. There just is none. And um, uh, that's something I have battled with over the years. Where you, you'll do the right thing, you'll go above and beyond, you the nth degree. Um, you know, uh, keep 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 your nose clean and, and all of that, and and, and you get shoved, uh, and that's happened to me plenty of times. You know that, uh, yeah. It's hurt, but but in the end, you've got to turn that hurt and that and that that frustration
0: into positive energy. And I've never had a problem doing that. You know, you yeah. just keep going. Yeah, and and what I do know is that the po- the positive energy you've taken from that <laughs> is that the way you run your business is that you do show loyalty and you do look after your staff and you do create an environment where the opposite is true. So again, if we come back to what talk, what you, you, mentioned before, all of those things helped you to do what you do now. And, and like, to me, that like knowing what I know from working in that industry, part of my motivation to come out and do my own thing was the same. Like there are so many yeah. things that I, that just outside my values but when you can bring that in and create your own space where you get to set the values, like, man, what a gift. What a gift to all those people you've employed all over those years to be able to provide that space for them in an industry that typically doesn't do that.
1: Yeah, look, what you're saying is true. Um, uh, there, there was an instance. There was a, a, something that happened um, in my career a long time ago, which is why I started my company. Um, I was at a radio station, and uh, I had um, the head of sport role, uh, and I loved the job. It was probably my most. Uh, I, I, if I, I wouldn't be, if things didn't work the way they did, I would probably still be happy to be doing it now. It was a great job, yeah. and um, I, I won't go into too much detail because it's not appropriate to. But it was one of those things. I started to hear rumours uh, about the station changing format and and what have you, and I approached. Um, a senior executive said, look, I'm hearing I'm hearing these these rumors from everywhere. And of course in that industry there are always rumors, but often where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Yeah. And uh, and I just came straight out and asked this person, is it true that you know this is going to happen? Went, Mate, please, he said, don't be ridiculous. You know me, that would never happen. Well, one week later, we were all made redundant. <laughs> Everyone in the sports office and and uh, there was some pretty pretty good talent, you know, talented sports people in there. And uh, you know, I, I was devastated. I just thought, how can you look me in the eye and tell me everything's sweet and kosher, mate? You've got nothing to worry about. Come and have a beer with me. And then a week later, you're like, it's almost like you're facing the firing squad. Disgusting. So that's when I really, I, I remember thinking to myself, you know what? That's never happening to me again. Yeah, oh, nice. I'm going to control my own destiny and. Of course, it has happened to me again, <laughs> but uh, but I had my own company going well enough that if it did happen to me again, uh, well, it didn't really matter. Yeah. yeah, now you know. um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's a definitely a true story. And you're right about, you know, I, I I do try to treat people the way that you want to be treated yourself. And, you know, if you look through the list of the people that work with me, uh, there's some some guys that have been with me 15, 16, 17 years. It's... Yeah, not many people leave, I'm happy to say.
0: Yeah. yeah. As you as you say, you've got to control that destiny. That was a big motivator for me as well. Like I get to control what's true for me and where I'm heading. And, and you know, I, I mentioned the, the loyalty that you show your staff. When you show whatever it is that's important to you, it gets reciprocated, right? And that loyalty coming back to you of people that are happy to stay there because they know you're going to look after them and you're going to create a, a uh, an environment where yeah where it's, they, the cult, it's all about culture
1: we talk about culture a lot don't we yeah it's a word that's used in sport ad nauseum. um sometimes sublime or ridiculous you know you hear about the culture of a winning club well i mean can i tell you the culture of a winning club starts with money <laughs> you know, that's the most important part of building culture to start with and, and people don't like to acknowledge that but it's true um but you know, a, a good culture is um, say what you mean, mean what you say, and um, and just
0: do the right thing, and you'll get the right thing in, in spade lives. You know. So, so what I'm getting is back to the question I asked about generating money. It's it's uh, what you said there. It's that integrity of doing what you're saying, saying what you're doing. It's it's loyalty. It's it's creating an environment that that people want to be involved in. Um, mm-hmm. It, that just draws me to the, to something I thought about before when you talked about you'd call football for for free, like the same as those things that we just talked about then. I, I know you, you do those things for free too. Like often you do it by giving as well, giving generously. Right. And and to me, that's part of what why I do this program is to really shine a light on those things so that other people watching can realise that there's going to be part of their life that, they would do for free too and they get so much they do do for free they get so much joy out of it whether you have a business in that or or, or not as not as important as really remembering that about yourself so tappy thank you so much for sharing those things because i think for us to shine a light on how you've done that in your life through through all these different challenges, and also not not always challenges, but just different changes of direction, you've stuck yeah. solid, you've stuck solid to these real real the essence of who you are through the, all of that. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. But you know, in the
1: end, it's um, you know, it's just you can't give up, mate. It's just not an option if you yeah. if you believe in it. You've got to find a way. Um, my my kids are watching your broadcast at the moment. My my three children who are all adults obviously and uh they'll be laughing right now because i know what i'm going to say but there's a, <laughs> there's, a scene in, there's a scene in rocky filing and if you haven't seen it you, you've got to watch it where sylvester stallone says you know it's, it's his son uh, that he's talking to and uh, he says you know life is mean and nasty and uh, it'll beat the hell out of you if you let it and We'll all get knocked down on the canvas and life is all about how you get up, keep moving forward, keep punching, that's how winning is done. I just think that absolutely epitomises life. Yeah. It's just a great scene and um, that I don't know, those words of uh, Rocky Balboa (laughs) (laughs) have stuck with me. And uh, my my daughter's particularly funny, Sade, she's in business as I mentioned earlier and there might be a challenge or something happen, And I'll, and I'll, and I'll say, well, listen, as you go, I know, I know, Rocky Balboa. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, that's awesome, man. But, but also like what you added there, uh, you don't give up. But just because you don't keep doing something, it doesn't mean you're giving up. It means that you're like, well, that's not, that's not the right path. Yeah, that's the, what i said before. You know, yeah. uh, you, ha- you haven't
1: failed if you've um, gone down the, down the track towards, in, towards rather uh, achieving a goal and uh, through the bumps and bruises along the way and, and the maturities you learn more about that, pro- it, it may become obvious to you that continuing down that path is in fact going to be destructive, be it financially, emotionally, whatever. It, that is not failure to make a decision to pull the pin. That's just being smart, you know, but um, and that, you know, we've all done that, haven't we? You know, yes and, I, and some of the things we've talked about in this conversation like that television show we we had when i first met you uh checkered flag for 20 years that show ran but in yeah. the end i couldn't justify keeping it on the air because yeah. it was too hard financially uh it was too hard for a whole range of reasons so i pulled the pin my publishing business you know we had a national motor racing magazine that was very very successful for a long time but it wasn't successful anymore because the the world wide web you know destroyed it as it has done to many magazine titles yeah so please. you know, you, you, you can't continue flogging yourself and building yourself around the head you've hmm. got to make call sometimes
0: yeah yeah um, that's not that's not failure particularly right. doing 20, 20 years or 18 years yeah yeah it's just a, a logical progression onto something else I, I was i was immediately drawn to um like you don't know the passion of fans until you've know the passion of speedway fans and and the uh the couple of times where we had some um technical issues where the program didn't get there on the first run or we, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> we knew about it like the phones lit up and um yeah it was uh thankfully that didn't happen too often <laughs> no no
1: it didn't that's true, that's true.
0: So and I, and I wasn't, well, it wasn't my fault. That's my <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, but we we learned some lessons on how we made sure that it, that we could change it for the future. Yeah. So, Tappy, something that you talked about before, and you were talking about you know, you know, how do you fill that void of not i not been able to call the football, but I know that you have found a way that you, in a way, not only fill that void but bring in so much more joy to your life, and that's through music. And and mm-hmm. and I and I'd love to hear about not only you know, you've created the band, but more recently last year, you said one of the gifts of having a pandemic for you was getting to record a song that you fully produced start to finish. Like, what a buzz.
1: Yes, yeah, so um, it really was a buzz. Um, it, it, I can't say that it was a bucket list item. It was not something that I uh, dreamed about, you know, uh, year after year. It just happened. Um, I was uh, no different to a lot of people i see you have an acoustic guitar behind you there uh i had a guitar and i used to just like pluck away you know in the in the lounge room or you know on the terrace whatever the case may be and i didn't take it that seriously and whenever it got too hard i i sort of um chose to find other things to do i suppose because i didn't really care you know it was just like something to muck around with yeah but i didn't grow up you know in again uh, harping back to my childhood uh, my dad's a really good musician uh, guitarist uh, plays piano beautifully, sings, had, had a song in the top 40 all those years ago. And uh, sing-alongs in our house uh, as a kid were commonplace on a Saturday night. Uh, the great Rabs used to often uh, arrive and, you know, do duets with, with Tappy. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah. And uh, so, yeah, and, and it was a funny thing. I loved it, um, but it didn't burn deep enough for me to um, to jump in and, and do it. But as time went on, I think it was because I was starting to understand a lot more about production, uh, I sort of just got, got the logic of music, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I started to take the guitar a bit more seriously, and, and I had a friend who convinced me to join this program called Weekend Warriors, which is a little bit like The Voice. Uh, a whole bunch of people with musical instruments turn up, you audition. In my case, I reckon there were 40 people there. And a coach uh, walks along and goes, right, mate, you're in that band. You go over and stand over there. And the whole purpose is that they put you into a band with a group of people you don't know. Uh, and you've got four weeks to learn 15 songs. And you've got to do a live performance in front of an audience uh, at the end of that. Yeah, wow. So, so I ended up in a band. Um, there were three guys and two girls. And... Um, just trying to think what we were called. <laughs> I actually can't remember the name of the moment. Can you believe it? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, and we, we did this gig and it went really well. And I just remember thinking, how good is this? Why didn't I take this seriously ages ago? That was so much fun. And yeah. I was I was crap. Like, I, I was not a, a good guitarist or anything. And, and it just snowballed from there. And um, it, yeah, it, it became really important to me. Uh, all of a sudden, to, to pursue it for enjoyment and for challenge. Yes. Yes. So I started getting serious guitar lessons. Uh, my first teacher was Robert Taylor, who's in the Australian Music Hall of Fame, the original lead guitar of Dragon. Yeah, wow. He did that famous April Sun in Cuba riff, and he wrote a couple of Dragon's big hits. I became friends friends with Todd Hunter, the founding member of Dragon, and I produced a live DVD of one of their performances. And yeah, I remember. Todd actually sat me down. I showed him the DVD after we'd done the edit, and he went, mate, you should be, like, you're really good at this music stuff what are you doing you know so it just all went for now and um and yeah then i formed my own band and, and midlife crisis <laughs> one of the great names
0: <laughs>
1: and uh we we just didn't look back it was extraordinary it was like it became a juggernaut and we were playing sometimes three times a week which really was too much and I just made fantastic uh five years on the road you a stack of gigs, um played all the major clubs and pubs and venues and and then COVID destroyed it all, didn't it? So we have our first gig coming up on July 11. For 15, that's the first gig for 15 months. But writing the song, um, it just happened and uh, it was a lot of fun. I wrote the lyrics in about three hours and then I think it took me about two and a half days to, to work out the music and then about another two days in the studio to um, to record it. And I wrote it as a ballad on acoustic guitar to start with. When I went into the studio to record it at my brother-in-law's studio, Supernova Sound at Surrey Hills, the best in the business, uh, he said to me, mate, you're in a rock band. Why, why wouldn't you do a rock version as well? So we, we decided to do a rock version. And, mate, I'm really proud of it. Uh, you know, it's, it's got a good groove and it yeah. does the tape
0: yeah it's available in, the in all the usual places <laughs> yeah, very good no like it's got a good sound to it i actually listened to it again this week and there was like a bit of uh spy v spy i got a bit of that sort of like that that 80s sort of rock sort of feel to it um mm-hmm. but, like, but like you said when you were talking about it at the start is like you, you did it for the for the joy it gave you, right? Like all yeah. of the things that we do, don't have to always be a revolve around business, right? Like no. sometimes it's just because it brings us so much happiness to to follow those sorts of things. Yeah, I,
1: I just um, yeah, I just wanted to do it for me to see if I could, and I was confident I could write the lyrics because I've spent a lifetime writing, you know, scripts, voiceover scripts, and, and things of that nature. Yeah, I um, uh, wrote a lot of um, articles in the magazine that, that we published for eighteen years. But um, doing the music and the arrangement, that was a completely different thing. And it was fantastic, you know, and a lot of fun and, and and I'll do a couple more. But just for me, I mean, I know no one's going
0: to buy it or download it. It doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> yeah. Just a bit of fun. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I love it. Uh, Tappy, awesome. I love this chat. Is there, is there anything else that you feel like you'd love to share with our audience today? <laughs> How long have you got, mate? <laughs> no, no,
1: no, seriously, I, I really, I've enjoyed this. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, you're one of the most decent, hardworking blokes I know, and I've seen what you have done. And uh, it's, it's an absolute privilege to be on here today with you because um, uh, you, you know, you epitomize the adage, if you believe in something, get out and do it. And it's gonna be tough. You're going to be, um, you're going to hit hurdles.
0: You're going to fall on your face, but just, just
1: keep going and you'll get there.
0: I appreciate. It. If you believe it, yeah, I appreciate that, mate. I appreciate it, and uh, I've enjoyed all those years we we worked together, and I've really enjoyed this chat today. And and also, like, I love that we can come on here and I can learn a whole lot of things that somehow we've missed on those uh, long lunches back in the good old days. Um, yeah. That, uh, yeah
1: yeah, uh, my fiance, Ricky, whom you know well, uh, she, she, she she said to me this morning, see if you're going slip something in about the lunches we used to have. <laughs> but We had some very long lunches, in fact, you know. Like, you do. know, talking about the lunches, if you, uh, do you mind if I just say one yeah. thing? Uh, yeah. You know, particularly to young people watching, it's very important you do have a balance in your life. You know that, right? Yeah. Uh, you and I come from an industry that is pressure-packed. Deadline, 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 you know. Yeah. Um, it's hard. But um, what I didn't do for a long time was I didn't have a balance, you know. Um, yeah. I worked worked myself to a standstill. I think for nine years I worked seven days a week. Wow. And loved it. I mean, how ridiculous is that? <laughs> but, you know, the whole thing, you know, your kids grow up so fast and, you know, in, in your mind as a, as a man you think you're providing for them and that's okay, i will go to work again. and That's actually wrong and uh, have a
0: balance, it's, um, yeah. that's important. It's important for your health too. Yeah, well said, um, mm. that is a and great the issue- is that balance. Yeah, I love it. Oh, for me, it's, a, it's a, a, an integral part of my well-being. Like the, the, you can listen to songs and it gives you that buzz. I can imagine, only imagine uh, what that buzz is like to, to write your own stuff. So that's uh, amazing. Tappy, uh, thank you so much for sharing so open, openly and, and so many of those stories from your past. And, yeah, really uh, inspiring, mate. I appreciate it. Mate, thank you so much for having me on and, and good luck to you and your family and uh, your future cheers mate. and
1: uh, I think it's about time we did do lunch and it's on you this time okay
0: <laughs> very good well played well I'll thank yeah, you, you said to say <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it mate cheers I hope you enjoyed this episode of the grief code podcast thank you so much for listening please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too if you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief let's chat